0: We are right at 4 o'clock. Why don't we go ahead and get this kicked off, and we'll just keep an eye to see if someone, uh, if Tricia joins. We might also have Dr. Aaron Cariotti joining and potentially uh, Dr. Robert Malone as well. So we'll keep an eye on on who's joining and, and make sure that we extend the invite for them to speak. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. I know it seems like the audience will continue to grow, but this is a uh, Twitter space event that I've been really looking forward to. Uh, Let me introduce the folks that we have on right now as as speakers this evening, and then we're going to dive into this. So, we have uh, attorney Jeff Childers, we have attorney Bobby Ann, we have attorney Warner Mendenhall. So, um, for those of you who don't know them, uh, I'm going to have them go around and just do a quick introduction of themselves. But this team um, that, that we've assembled is incredible. They're doing amazing work. And I think we can probably all agree at this point, we know that um, we're past this, this point in the pandemic where we're searching for um uh, specific protocols. We're searching, searching for early intervention. We're searching for information about um, the you know, the vaccines. We know the vaccines have dangers associated to them. And I think we're at a point where, from a legal perspective, we're looking at next steps and what does that look like in terms of accountability and um, the legal landscape of what's, what's happened over the last two and a half, almost three years, and what does it look like moving forward? And this team is here to answer some of those questions and talk about what they have right now that they are working on. So welcome to everyone. Uh, Why don't we start with you, Warner, if you don't mind um, unmuting yourself and just doing a quick introduction.
1: Sure, I've been practicing law since the 1990s. Uh, My practice has had a large focus on uh, corporate and government responsibility and accountability um, we have seen uh, that governments have extended their powers prior to this crisis. We had already been litigating a number of those cases before COVID ever came along. But this has been an absolute explosion of, of uh, behavior uh, using power that government does not have at local, state and federal levels. We have lawsuits at all of those levels. Uh, and we have a number of lawsuits under the Federal False Claims Act. So The first one is against Pfizer. That's Brooke Jackson's case. He's the uh, clinical trial uh, uh, Federal False Claims Act case. We've sued a number of hospitals as well as testing for COVID. The PCR tests are fraudulent. We know that. The manufacturers have, have committed fraud, we believe. Uh, we've done a, n- a number of employment cases. And then we're very well known for the education cases because we've sued uh, six state schools, including the Regents of the University of California, uh, Ohio U, Miami U, uh, uh, Bowling Green, you know, so six total. And then we've sued a number of school districts as well. Uh, and we have actually worked in other levels, every single level you can imagine throughout this process. So I'll, I'll move on. I've got a lot more I could say. And uh, I appreciate uh, being on here tonight. And thanks for everybody listening.
0: Well, fantastic. Welcome, Warner. Uh, great to have you on. Bobby Ann, why don't you introduce yourself?
2: Okay, great. Yes, thank you. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Bobby Ann Cox. I'm an attorney in New York, and um, I've been practicing law for 25 years now. Um, I am a native New Yorker, and um, last year uh, I was able to, uh, as Warner was just saying, there's a lot of overreach uh, going on in our government right now, and last year I was able to successfully sue the governor of New York State, um, Kathy Hochul, and her Department of Health for um, an unconstitutional regulation that they had put forth. Um, it was called isolation and quarantine regulation. Um, and it basically uh, allowed the governor of the Department of Health to lock up workers under suspicion of having a communicable disease, no proof needed um, for undetermined amounts of time and uh, with no no way to get out of quarantine once they locked you in quarantine. So um I, I was uh, working with a, a group of New York State legislators: um, uh, Senator George Barello, Assemblyman Chris Take, Assemblyman Mike Lawler, who is now Congressman Mike Lawler, and um, we we won the lawsuit last summer. Um, there was an election in November, uh, and of course, nothing happened because the governor was running for election and uh, she won. And now, their sixth month deadline to appeal my win um, came up and they have asked for an additional two months to be able to appeal the case Um, so I'll get into that a little bit a little bit later but um, basically in here in New York we are we are still in the phase of of pushing back against the tyranny and the overreach Um, we we haven't quite gotten to the stage of holding people accountable yet so we're, we're, we're still fighting phase one here
0: well, we're excited to have you on the call. Um, I can tell you that it seems like New York is, is very similar to California in terms of where we are legally and what's happening with incredible um, overreach of the government, things that I never would have thought we would have seen. We certainly are in, in, in pretty historic times right now. Um, so Jeff, why don't you introduce yourself and a little bit about where, uh, what you're working on and then um, we'll turn it over to Amanda and then we'll go from there. Can you hear us, Jeff? Can you hear us? All right. Well, Amanda, do you want to talk a little bit about Baxte Research Foundation?
3: Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Laura. I am just here to represent the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. Um, we are partnering with Unity Project tonight, as well as uh, Warner and his team getting ready to put on our COVID legal conference upcoming in March. And so I'll be putting some things in the chat about that. And I'm sure that will be coming up as a topic of discussion. But I'm here to answer any questions about that conference. Uh As the event director mandates, I've come back to work and helping put on this next (laughs) event to um, support the team in Atlanta, Georgia, March 25th and 26th. And so the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, Steve Kirsch, the whole team is excited to partner with everybody to put on another great event.
0: Fantastic. I know. uh, Okay, so why don't I turn it over? I think, Jeff, we've listed you as a speaker. Do you are you able to speak now?
3: Yes. Uh, Hey, Laura, can you hear me? I can. Great. Thanks for uh, putting me back in. Um, (laughs) No problem. So I guess I am the uh, token lawyer from the free state of Florida. Um, I, up until 2020, practiced uh, pretty much only in the area of commercial litigation, which is businesses over contracts and things like that. Um, You might not intuitively uh, imagine this, but in my county here in Florida, we were at ground zero for mandates, and we had one of the first mask mandates in the country, countywide. And that's when I did uh, my foray into constitutional law, and I sued the county here over their mask mandate. Uh, and to mm-hmm. my knowledge, um, I obtained the only appellate decision in the country finding that mandatory masking is presumptively unconstitutional. That's Green versus Alachua County from the first TCA. And anybody who's interested in this stuff, I encourage you to look that opinion up, and you'll you'll really love it. Uh, <clears throat> after that, we started taking on vaccine mandates and. Once again, we had one of the first uh, um, local government mandates, at least in the state, and we defeated that. We got a preliminary injunction against it. Uh, we started helping people with um, exemptions, and we set up a website with a lot of information on how to get exemptions. And we had group Zoom meetings where we would have uh, up to 100 people at a time coming in, and we would advise them on filling out their um Exemption paperwork, you know, all over the the country. Um, We've been working with the uh, the state here on model legislation from, you know, late summer of 2020. I've sued uh, hospitals. I've sued school districts. Um, We've had a a pretty good record. We have great courts here in north central Florida where I'm located, fortunately. And um, now we're really focused on accountability. And that's sort of what we're gearing up for, although we're still helping a lot of folks with uh, exemptions, um, in particular, college students and medical um, professionals. Um, we're also representing doctors in cases where they're being examined by their boards or um, Blue Cross Blue Shield for prescribing ivermectin and things like that. That's it in a nutshell.
0: All right. Well, Welcome to everyone that, that's on this panel and speaking about this. I know uh, the World Health Organization, I think a couple of days ago, made a statement that they believe that um, we are still under a pandemic state. And I know that the Biden administration has recently stated the state the, the state of emergency, essentially, will be over on May 11th. I'm not sure he is, is so confident that that will happen on May 11th. But I think we all are well aware of the fact that there has been Uh, really egregious violations of um, the rule of law in this country, in every state, uh, including states like Florida. So I'm actually glad, Jeff, that you're on and you can speak from that standpoint. Uh, But we know that there are some states that are certainly worse than others. I know, Bobby Ann, you're dealing with a lot of what we're dealing with here in California. And, Warner, why don't you talk a little bit about the event that's coming up in March? Because I think that's going to be really powerful. And then we'll start diving down into some conversation about uh, what's happening legally in the country to to stop Um, not only I know the work that you guys have done uh, around stopping the vaccine mandates, which we've seen that start to fall off. um, But also, how do we get accountability for folks that have been damaged over the last two and a half years uh, from this country's response to the COVID-19 pandemic? So with that i'll turn it over to you warner okay
1: um yeah i think we're gonna have a great conference um and and thank you uh bobby ann and jeff for uh presenting at that conference by the way um we have a bunch of attorneys coming um we have uh, dr Pierre corey and ryan cole have also agreed to come they're gonna probably give a, a little bit of a talk but they're gonna sit on a panel regarding uh, the boards and the certifications and what's going on with them legally Uh, So it's not going to be so medically focused. It's going to be legally focused. And we have a number of areas that we're going to cover, employer mandates at all levels, uh, including military, education mandates at all levels. It's unbelievable, but some of these schools, these universities are still imposing mandates on these kids. It's really a hazing just to get through a university uh, these days. Medical licensing, of course, um, and then fraud area. And I see Brooke Jackson is on here as a listener. Hey, um, and, and that's going to particularly focus on the False Claims Act. And Brooke has agreed to appear at the conference and discuss, you know, what's going on with her, and you know how the federal government treated her in the process, and what it's like to be a whistleblower because it's a very uh, unique position to be in. And she's been very courageous to step up. But we're also going to look at under the False Claims Act what we call VERA's fraud. Uh, all hospitals are required to report, and they are not. And reporting for adverse events includes if one of your vaccinated people or one of your patients that you know is vaccinated, uh, so-called vaccinated, I should say, uh, if they get COVID. That's an adverse event that's reportable. Every one of those should be uh, filling up the VAERS uh, system right now. Furthermore, we're going to look at SBA and PPP fraud. That is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And then whistleblower protection as well. So big, uh, you know, big topic there. Um, Civil rights, of course, uh, public access and accommodation, ADA, informed consent, religious liberty, First Amendment, obviously. Uh, and censorship. Um, we are also starting to look into vaccine injury pathways. Um, you know, how do we hold people liable uh, for vaccine injuries? How do we hold employers liable for vaccine injury? How do we hold Pfizer law for that? Um, we are looking at uh, various uh, methods there. Hospital negligence uh, is a big one Uh, We've seen millions killed with remdesivir. Uh, If you look at many, many hospitals, their death rate, if you got remdesivir, flip a coin because it's 50% chance you're getting out alive. Some are as high as 70% death rates. So we also see with remdesivir that a lot of that was not indicated uh, for particular patients, which gives us a pathway to sue that hospital for that patient, which we have uh, started down that pathway already. Um, the hospitals have also been terrible with their vaccine coercion with their own bees. And then finally uh, we have a section, these are kind of some new areas coming up, but mass torts, uh, that also links into the, obviously the COVID vaccine injury and the misuse of the drugs that were used to treat COVID. So I think the mass torts is going, we're trying to find a pathway there. I think that could be huge. I think this is bigger than the opioid asbestos, tobacco litigation combined. So we're hoping that greed will drive some lawyers uh, to the front of this and and get some funding and get this stuff uh, rolling. So we got a lot of work to do over the next five to 10 years. um, And uh, that's kind of a brief outline of what we're gonna be covering.
0: Well, it sounds like an exciting event. I can't wait to attend um, on behalf of the Unity Project. And it's so incredibly necessary. You know, um, I, I get asked all the time, how is this possible? When we have something called the, the Constitution, and of course we have state constitutions, and it seems like those have been um, all completely trampled on. I know here in California, we have uh, what we believe to be a First Amendment violation uh, in AB 2098. And Dr. Aaron Cariotti going to join, hopefully, uh, in the next 15 minutes. He can talk a little bit about the, the ruling that they just got on that. Um, but I'd like to just open it up to, to some of the attorneys. I, you know, we, we get asked at the Unity Project quite often, how is it that um, it is legal to mandate uh, people to vaccinate their children, as an example, in order to attend school? And I know, Warner, you said you're addressing that. So um, I'd just like to open it up to the panel. And Tricia, thank you for joining. Um, I, I'm excited to have you on. So um, maybe maybe you can tackle that. Um, and, then, and then I'd like to hear from the other panelists.
1: Do you want to hear from me or Tricia?
0: Uh, let's start with Tricia, and then um, I'd like to have all of you take turns kind of weighing in on this. If Trisha can't hear us, it looks like you're on, on mute, Tricia. If you can't hear us, Warner, what, why don't you go ahead and take that?
1: You know, right off the bat, I think people need to realize how much success we are having in the court. Um, you know, look at the Supreme Court. It overturned two out of the three issues that were before it last January. Um, You you know, the courts are actually performing their role. It's slow. It's uh, deliberate. um, It's hard. But, you know, the courts are stepping up, uh, the federal courts in particular. So our system of government is far from perfect and could use we could use some speed in the courts because justice delayed is justice denied. But there are 16,000 out there right now uh, fighting uh, all of the mandates, fighting everything that's going on in employment, education, workers' compensation, business loss. Um, you know, so I, I see the attorneys. I wish there were more of us doing this, um, and we probably need you know 10,000 attorneys doing this. And there's probably only a thousand of us right now, but. You know, I do see the courts as as our way to go. Um, You know, let's remember, courts are to moderate violence in society, and they are actually doing that by providing some remedy for people. If we don't have the court system to correct the wrongs that have occurred here, then people do turn violent. I mean, that's what the courts do, and I think people forget what the role is. You've got to mediate violence somehow. This is how we've chosen to do it in our country and we need, to, we need to support the courts, we need to make sure they're effective, and we need to address, you know, I was happy to s- see Jeff talk about model legislation because one of the things we can all do is influence our uh, political leaders. And Ohio has a two-thirds uh, red state legislature right now, and I do believe we're gonna get some laws passed that the courts can then enforce. And some of the laws our state legislature passed early on were instrumental to our successes in some of these cases, uh, particularly the college cases in Ohio. So I, it's a combination of legislation and the courts. Uh, we all need to be aware of it, and, and I think that we don't need to despair. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm very upset at the numbers of people who took the shot and what's happening to them, but, uh, and, and, uh, and I do want people to realize it. people are suffering to take on these cases. I mean, Brooke Jackson has gone through hell to bring her case forward and to communicate to the world, um, and so have many other of our clients who've lost their jobs. Uh, Over this, but they're fighting. Uh, We are ultimately going to prevail, uh, and we are prevailing every day. So, I I don't want people to give up. Uh, There is hope, and uh, you can see the successes out there. I know it's not focused on very much. I want to say one more thing quickly. Even losing cases count, losing cases show that you will stand and fight. So, even the attorneys who brought a case that lost, which we brought some of those too, um, even those cases matter because those school districts are going to have to spend money. Uh, and energy and time to defend those cases.
4: Thanks.
0: Thank you, Trisha. Are you um, available?
4: I am. I'm here. I apologize. It was That's a little a- difficult getting on. I don't know if it's age.
0: <laughs> no, you know what? It's, once you get in, I think you you learn the tricks. I was I was right there with you. I'm not as sophisticated on social media, so I'd love for you to weigh in um, on what you're working on. And are you are you dealing with anything in the um, the school age children are you getting people that are concerned in the area that you 're in about having to you know what are they going to do if they 're in fact mandated to vaccinate their children in order to go to mainstream
4: schooling? You know I have a number of people that have contacted me interestingly, especially over the past week weeks. so and there are a number I have a number of meetings set up with plaintiffs to just to pretty much explain to them what they 're getting into when they enter cases such as this. like one said you know these types of cases. When you take them on as attorneys and even as plaintiffs, you're pretty much putting a target on your back, right? And I explain to clients, when you're about, when you're ready to go down this path, you have to be sure about what you're doing because we don't want to start a case and then do fear or coercion or, you know, just losing hope on those plaintiffs, those same plaintiffs back up and they back out because then it tends to weaken the cases, right? And so you explain to people what could happen, what could potentially, you know, um, society is split, still split, unfortunately, on this um, topic. Although there are more people that are against it than are for it, there are not many that are willing to speak up. And so they may find themselves in precarious situations within their communities, their children within the schools and things of that sort. So I tend to explain that to clients. And there are a number that are willing to go ahead and they're ready to fight. And there are some that are thinking about it. And so for me, that's fine because I want clear about what they're getting into. I agree with um, with Warner. And I think that the pressure, which is what I often say, the cases are just as good as the winning cases or they're just as important, I should say, because the pressure. I always say the more people that are packing the courts and that are flocking to the courts and bringing cases and holding employees, um, employers um, accountable, The the better it is for us because it's like chiseling away, you know, at the at this huge mountain. And the more we apply pressure, and the more we chisel, the more cases bring. There's only so long the ignore what's going on. There's only but so long that the legislators can ignore it, even if they want to. With what's going on, unfortunately, in society, with the number of cases of people of all ages, but especially the young people dying suddenly, it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to deny what's happening. Sure. And it's very refreshing to see cases because for, for me, one of the cases that I brought last year that I was not successful on, but it, it was interesting when I was arguing a case before the New York Supreme Court, because it was pretty much challenging the mandate, New York city mandate mm-hmm. on the basis of it being arbitrary and the, the, um, the um, usurping his authority, the DOH, the, similar to the cases that have been filed and the one that um, CHD just recently won. And when I was, interesting when I was arguing that case with the um before the court my oral argument went on for about I would say about an hour or more you could see where the the judge wanted wanted really to rule in my in my favor and our favor the plaintiff's favor but just something allow him to and so when I saw this mm-hmm. um victory this year I said wow we're making a dent we made a dent I don't care who wins it as long as we win it because this is about this is about our community. This is about our children. This is about our families, right? right. And so it doesn't matter who wins for me, as mm-hmm. long as the dent is made and we are victorious in the end. And so for each attorney that brings a case, for plaintiff that lines up and challenges the schools, be it on the education on the lower educational level or the secondary level, for mm-hmm. every employer that is now held accountable who thought they were going to be um, shielded from liability because they were following a mandate that we screened from the rooftops were illegal, they're no longer going to be shielded. And they're going to have to answer for that, either by paying attorney's fees to defend against it or by paying attorney's fees and eventually damages to their employees who suffered under this.
0: Right, right. And, And we're so grateful for the work that you're doing. I think those are all incredibly important and valid points. Um, which is why we need to galvanize attorneys to, in this country to stand up and take these types of cases, because we know that there are, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cases in, you know, across this country that could be represented. Uh, one of the probably more prominent cases, though, is uh, a case against AB 2098 in the state of California. For those of you who are listening and are unfamiliar, This is a bill that was signed uh, by Gavin Newsom, went into effect on January 1st, and it essentially is um, the destruction of informed consent and and, and complete violation of the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, I want to welcome Dr. Aaron Cariotti to this event. He is one of the plaintiffs in this case, and they actually just had... A really big win. So, so Aaron, welcome. If you want to fill everyone in uh, from a legal standpoint, what what happened, and then maybe we'll get some of the other attorneys to to weigh in on that. I'd I'd actually like to hear from Bobby Ann about what's happening in New York and if you have any similar legislation that you're concerned about. After we sure. hear from Aaron,
5: thank you, thank you, Laura. Great to be here. Great to be with all of you. Um, I see Brooke Jackson in the audience too. I don't know if she'd be interested in coming up as a speaker, but if there's time, it would be terrific to get an update on her whistleblower case as well. Um, which, Fantastic. Uh,
0: I've, I've uh, listed you as an option to speak, Brooke, if you if you decide you want to jump on.
5: Okay. Okay, so AB 2098 was passed by the California State Legislature, signed by the government uh, toward the end of last year and went into effect officially January 1st. <laughs> um, this is a law that uh, Unity Project and several of our affiliates had opposed from the very beginning. The law empowers the state medical board which is responsible licensing physicians and disciplining physicians, empowers the state medical board to discipline a physician potentially uh, removing their medical license for any physician who in the context of uh, clinical consulting gives advice or says anything to a patient that is contrary to what the law calls the quote current scientific consensus. Uh, The law also uses the language of standard of care, which is. Um, sort of redundant, actually, if the law was only that physicians have to follow the standard of care, then it wouldn't be empowering the medical board to do anything new because the medical board already has the ability to discipline physicians that, that do things that are contrary to the standard of care when that has been clearly established for the treatment of an illness. But the current scientific consensus was a very busy notion, difficult to define legally, um, difficult to know whether you know what I might be telling a patient is or is not something uh, would, be, uh, would be regarded as running contra- a consensus, especially on a rapidly evolving area of interest, uh, such as COVID, but a novel virus, uh, a lot of new treatments, a lot of changes over time, um, even studies that have been done on COVID, the, the outcome of those studies don't remain static and fixed. Uh, vaccine efficacy is a good example of that. Uh, depending on when you do the study, the vaccine efficacy uh, can uh, change actually quite quite quickly. So, mRNA vaccines now that for the initial two doses of the mRNA vaccines, efficacy against infection uh, and severe disease w- w- was better uh, if you tested efficacy shorter, um, shortly after you got the shots. So, within uh, a month or two of getting the shots. But then if you tested efficacy again after six months, efficacy had dropped very significantly, below 50% actually, below the threshold that was necessary for FDA approval. So whatever efficacy you got from those shots was at best very short-lived. And with subsequent booster shots, you saw the same thing, an initial uh, bump in efficacy again. Uh, And so if you test it at the peak period, it could look like shots are offering some sort of benefit. But then if you uh, tested a month or two or three out, you, you rapidly saw efficacy wane. And in fact, it, it dropped off even more quickly for each subsequent dose than it had for the previous doses. So you, you have, you have th- uh, things that are rapidly changing. You have new variants of a virus, you have novel treatments, you have conflicting evidence all over the place because people are still trying to figure things out. And so a law like this, um, uh, we feared would have a kind of chilling effect on the practice of medicine, not knowing whether what I'm saying may or may not get me into trouble with the law and get me into trouble with the medical board, the net effect would be basically physicians playing it safe and physicians being unwilling to say anything that might contradict uh, the government's preferred policies on COVID. I think that's precisely how the law would have been interpreted. And so what I argued at the Senate when I testified against law was, uh, among other things, that uh, this should not be seen as an ideological issue. It's on a left, right, liberal, conservative issue, because I don't know anyone in California, liberal or conservative, who would want to go to their physician and ask their physician a question about COVID, not get the physician's honest opinion. Uh, No one wants a physician with a gag order. No one wants a doctor who is reading from a script written by um, the California Department of Public Health or any other public health bureaucrat or bureaucracy. Uh, Now, you, you may be skeptical of your doctor's opinion or your doctor's recommendation fine you know the patient has a right to go get a second opinion the patient has a right of course to decline their doctor's recommendation or to question their doctor's recommendation or to go do their own research great Uh, but again uh, no one wants to go see a doctor and not have their doctor actually respond to their questions truthfully with their own uh, professional judgment their own professional opinion so that was one one very serious problem with the law so we, uh, once this law was passed, uh, we were obviously very concerned. Uh, many, many doctors are very concerned about what was going to happen with this law in California and the fact that this, this California law was sort of a trial balloon for the rest of the country. Um, people outside of California are, are paying very, very close attention to this law and to, the, and to the lawsuits that are challenging it. I think precisely because people know that if, if this flies in California, there's gonna be many other states That will try to implement uh, the same kind of restrictions on medical freedom uh, and the same kind of restrictions on physicians' free speech. But to make a long story short, um, that's kind of by way of background, five physicians, myself included, in California have filed a lawsuit challenging this law in federal court, arguing that it violates um, physicians' constitutional right to speech, and also arguing that because the language of the law is uh, fuzzy and not precise, it also violates our equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. One of the implications of the 14th Amendment is that a law has to be sufficiently clear so that a person can know whether he or she is or is not violating the law. Right. Law- laws have to be written with sufficient clarity. The definitions in the law have to be uh, sufficiently precise that I can know whether I'm about to say is or is not in accord with the law. And without that, uh, again, you have this kind of, you have this kind of chilling effect, which may have been the intent of the law in the first place. It, it may not have been the case that the medical board was planning on going after a whole bunch of physicians under the uh, the authority of this law, you know, perhaps making a public example out of one or two would have been sufficient and the rest message. Um, and so uh, our case uh, followed on a, another case, also for physicians, that had been uh, essentially thrown out of court on the grounds the judge in that case determined that the physicians lacked standing to challenge the law because their particular medical specialties were not ones where they were treating COVID patients directly. Um, and we made some some arguments uh, to, to deal with that standing issue, and the court found last uh, that we did have standing to bring the lawsuit. So we, we cleared that major hurdle, which is a good thing. Uh, there was an accompanying uh, or, or a similar case uh, brought by Children's Health that's challenging this lie as well. And uh, so the judge in in our case uh, basically made a ruling that would, that would apply to both our lawsuit and the CHD lawsuit. And so one of the things that we asked for, we petitioned the court for what's called a preliminary injunction against the law, and that would essentially halt the implementation of the law while our case is being heard. Um, Unfortunately, the law went into effect January 1st, and we didn't get the hearing until the end of January on that preliminary injunction. Uh, But during those few weeks when the law was in effect, I'm aware that anyone was disciplined uh, under that law by the medical board. And the second piece of good news is that last week, not only did the court decide that the plaintiffs in our case, uh, myself and four other physicians, do have standing to challenge the law. Legally, but the court also granted our preliminary injunction, meaning that now that law is is uh, paused. It's uh, it's it's held in abeyance. It's not being implemented, uh, it can't be enforced until the court makes a final ruling, and that's good news. Not only you know because doctors and patients right now in California at the moment don't have to don't have to labor under the, the threat of that law, but it's also good news to get a preliminary injunction awarded. It's essentially the court saying even before the case goes to trial that in our written documents alone, in our complaint and in declarations submitted by the plaintiffs, uh, there's, there's reason to believe that our case will prevail on the merits of the arguments that we've already made. So it's, it's the court's way of saying there's a very good chance that, that, we'll, that these plaintiffs will win. There's a very good chance that this law will be struck down as unconstitutional so i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves i don't have a crystal ball lots can happen once the case goes to trial and the evidence is heard and in those adversarial proceedings um so you know this is not certainly not a guarantee that we will prevail but it's a very good sign at this stage that we're on the right track um, and a very sign that um, either our case or a similar case will be able to uh, prevail in striking down that law so that's that's where we're at with the case and we'll we'll next proceed we don't have a trial date set yet um but we will next proceed the kind of um the kind of adversarial process of giving testimony and um cross-examination and uh oral arguments and so forth in that case
0: that's fantastic news aaron Uh, thanks for giving us that update i mean this this to me, I know you and I have spoken to this many times. This represented something that was really astonishing. Um, in so many ways, I've said in the past, I feel like this particular law was almost the open door to the destruction of what our medical system is in this country. I mean, the basic tenet of medical care in this country, as you said in your book, is, is really informed consent. And um, this seems to, this to really tear down informed consent so i would love to get uh, maybe bobby if you want to weigh in on uh, bobby ann excuse me if you want to weigh in on your thoughts on this and tell us about what's happening in new york and the work that you're doing and, and what you're seeing
2: yeah so um I, I think that the the judge's ruling in aaron's case is is a great start um I reached out to Aaron when, when I read the good news and and it's, it's really, you know, it's a small win, but it's a, it's a big win at the same time because that law um, is, is wholly unconstitutional and needs to be struck down, which, you know, if, if the courts do the right thing, uh, I believe it will be. But, you know, here in New York, we, we are facing, um, some proposed legislation that is, is pretty astounding. Um, to my knowledge, we don't have that same exact type of bill uh, or law that Aaron is fighting currently in the courts. Um, but here in New York, we have, uh, you know, we're, we're in a terrible position, um, legislatively speaking. The, the Democrats have a supermajority in both the New York State Senate and the New York State Assembly and the Governor Mansion and the Attorney General's office. So we have literally one party rule in in new york uh, which we have had for for several years now Um, one party rule by any party is very dangerous um, because there are no checks and balances so um, you know we have a bill right now that's that's uh, being proposed it's been proposed the last couple years um, that uh, is would require all new york schools so all the schools in the state of New York, to um, teach comprehensive sexuality education to children starting in kindergarten wow. and going through 12th grade. So um, that, that has a lot of support. This proposed law has a lot of support right now in both our state assembly and our state senate. Um, and it's, I, I've read the bill. I've wrote, written a Substack article on the bill horrific. Um, it is basically an abolition of parental rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it takes away your ability to, to say when your child learns about, um, you know, sex and sexuality and all of this. Um, we have another bill that's proposed currently in the New York State Assembly um, that would allow minors of any age to be given to give um, their own consent to have any medical procedure done. Uh, including surgery, um, and it can be done without parental consent or knowledge. In fact, it can be done over the objection of a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bill provides that uh, you know no matter what, the, the parent is getting and, and, and needs to pay the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if there's insurance involved, the insurance company is forbidden by this bill to um, parent know what they're paying for. So. Um, it's it's again complete abolition of parental rights. I mean, it's it's absolutely unconscionable that they would even be pushing this uh, to become a law. Um, you know, of course, we have you know, uh, Dinowitz is is well known in in to New Yorkers who um, are fighting against the the, uh, the tyranny he has proposed. You know, last couple of years, mandatory COVID shots for all children K to twelve to attend school in in New York State. Um, you know, there, there's another bill um, that's set forth uh, in both the Senate and the Assembly um, requires all adult vaccine records to be given to the state of New York. You know, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. There, there are so many horrific bills that are just, you know, so um, offensive to to our constitutional rights and to our. Uh, really our society our societal norms um and like i said when i started this this sentence uh this conversation here you know we are in a um a super minority here in new york um and so it's it's an uphill battle it's a very different setting than if you're in a state that's got um i know warner had mentioned earlier that ohio has um you know a, a legislature right now that's three quarters republican um and i know I believe, I believe Florida has a state legislature right now that is a super majority of Republican. Mm -hmm. Um, Jeff can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but I would assume so. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's very, um, it's, it's an uphill battle. It's very upsetting to, to a lot of New Yorkers. And that's why you've seen uh, so many New Yorkers flee the state uh, in the last few years, because they just feel like the, the insanity is just, you know, it's unleashed and it's, um, it's, it's a decision that people are making for their families. Hey, I'm, I'm going to leave New York and I'm going to go to another state because, you know, it's more free and not as um, the, the, the government overreach isn't as as obvious and restrictive and scary. And right, so you've right. seen a mass exodus from New York. Well, we see that here in California as well. I feel like we're all at some point going to all, all roads
0: point to Florida, apparently, um, you know, and, and what's interesting is, as you as you go through and you list out what's happening in New York it seems very similar to what's happening here in california um, and, and i would like to invite all of all of the panelists um, that are speakers to just jump in at any time uh, i want this to be conversational in format but i would just ask all of all of the the attorneys and even dr cariotti you know we get at the unity project on a regular basis people reaching out to us saying what do we do from a legal perspective and it's everything from Hey, you know, my kid, I sent my kid to school and my kid was vaccinated without my knowledge or consent, and now they're vaccine injured. Uh, to, we have someone that we know um, that has a family member that committed a minor infraction, it's a misdemeanor, and they were given the option of um, doing a kind of picking up the trash on the side of the road for a weekend if they're vaccinated. And if they refuse to show proof of vaccination, they have to go to, to jail for 30 days. So now the criminal justice system itself is being weaponized. Um, and I know, Warner, we talked about um, the the mental, the mentally ill. And I know this is something that Dr. Cariotti I, I probably has a strong opinion on um, and how the mentally ill, in order to receive treatment, are needing to be show proof of vaccine. So, again, I, I want to open it up and, and, and just have you guys jump in. Let's have this just be a uh, conversation about what's happening, even at a granular level, at the individual level, and how people are being
1: impacted. Well, I would love to hear from Aaron about that. Uh, what we're seeing in, is that vulnerable populations are being coerced uh, to get the shot, to get social services at many, many different levels, including children's services, mental health services, drug addiction services. And I mean, one of the things that jumps to mind, especially with someone who is mentally ill, is what's their capacity to even give consent. So I see Jeff wants to jump in. Let's let him take the stage here.
3: Thanks, Warner. Um, Just before we left the sort of roundup from around the country, um, I did want to take a bigger picture the legal landscape because um you know as somebody who's been in it from beginning like Warner has um and this should be encouraging to a lot of people i have seen a sea change from the courts with regard to these covid issues so you know in 2020 when we were bringing these lawsuits and and you were going to court you always faced a an ice cold bench and when, you know, the government's lawyer said anything, they, they would say, well, judge, the CDC says, the judge would accept that as established evidence, just the attorney's representation of what the CDC said. It was, it was very difficult to get anywhere, especially at that trial court level. But at this point, what I'm finding, and I'd be curious to know what my colleagues think, um, I'm finding that. I have at least a 50 50 shot of getting a receptive judge who's curious, who's skeptical of the government's claims and, you know, wants to hear, um, about the, um, you know, what I would call the heterodox position. So if it's a trend, then we are definitely in the right direction. But even if this is as good as it gets, I think we have everything that we need to work with. And, um, Aaron's case is a great example. Um, Of what I'm talking about, because, you know, while all of us immediately recognize that, um, you know, Dr. Gag law in California as unconstitutional, I think everybody pretty much expected that it would have to get to the appellate level or even the Supreme Court for a favorable decision. But in fact, they already have a preliminary injunction at the trial court stage at the first level. And I don't want to pass by that particular fact too quickly. It's incredibly significant Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the standard to get a preliminary injunction like Aaron got. The judge has to find, among other things, that you're uh, substantially likely to prevail on the merits. That's one of the elements the judge has to find to grant a preliminary injunction to shut down the law. So in that sense, the majority forecasting where he's headed is. And so, uh, you know, again, you never know, but uh, you can't get a better early indicator in a lawsuit than that. And so things have changed a lot um, and it's so much better. And I, I would also say, you know, I agree with Warren. We don't have um, anywhere near enough lawyers in this space. And, you know, I think all of us are working as hard as we can to get on these Twitter spaces and speak at every opportunity and educate more lawyers and get more of them into the fight. Having said that, there are more lawyers filing cases now than there ever have been. And um, again, to me, it looks like a trend that is just continuing to increase. Couple that with the um, freedom of Twitter and that a lot of information is, is now freely um, coming out, that was suppressed before and so there's a lot of public education and why that's important is because those are the people that are going to be on our juries and it's important that they get to hear both sides and even if my they think their minds are closed or whatever having those additional sources of information makes it so much easier for us lawyers when we get in to um to court so there's a lot to be encouraged about and i'm i'm really excited about where we are i mean you know, I thought I was working hard before, but but there's so much opportunity right now. And then the other thing, Laura, that I could talk about, uh, and I'll just mention briefly and pass the baton. But, you know, here in Florida, as Bobby said um, correctly, we do have super majorities in both houses. And we have a governor that is posturing to run for president. And so the first thing I would say is get ready to see some incredibly exciting developments in Florida law, this legislative session happening right now. The bills are, are being filed. Um, you know They're going to be in committee and they're going to start getting signed as early April or May. So um, it, it's going to be a blockbuster. It's going to send an earthquake through the rest of the country, what Florida is doing. Uh, just to give you a, a tease, um, without any help from the legislature, the governor has indicated that he will not renew the um, hospital and healthcare provider liability shield in Florida when it expires in June. And that is going to open up the field for lawyers to finally start bringing lawsuits for people who are mistreated in hospitals. So um, there is a lot to be encouraged about. It's almost hard to count all the ways, but I'll stop there and, and we can talk more about that later if you think it's interesting.
0: Yeah, I think I, I thank you, Jeff. I think it's all fascinating, um, you know, and it's inspiring, too, because that is the kind of response that we we need to start seeing trickle across the country. It feels very much like up to this point, we've seen um, California and, and at times New York becoming the tip of the spear for really bad um, legal response as well as, as legislative policy. So um, that is it's inspiring. And I definitely would love it. Some you know, if we get the time to dive into that Um Maybe we can turn it over to Aaron. He can talk a little bit about um, the, the, the folks that are most at risk and how we're using uh, the COVID vaccine to, co you know, the, the situation that they're in to coerce them into getting the COVID vaccine. Um, and again, um, I, I really encourage everyone on the panel, Trisha, Bobby Ann, Jeff, Warner, all of you to jump in and just and, and, and really express your thoughts on this from a legal standpoint. You guys are all the experts. And really, you're, what's, you're, the, you're our line of defense against what's happening in this country. So Aaron.
5: Yeah, so I mean the vaccine fanatics have become endlessly creative with uh, different ways to coerce people and all these forms of coercion from the threat of losing one's job under an employer mandate to uh, the threat of losing access to social services or psychiatric services or other medical services all of this is not just wrong but so so egregiously wrong and contrary to sound medical athlete ethics i mentioned the principle of in- informed consent which was enshrined at nuremberg which gives every adult of sound mind the right to consent or to decline a proposed medical intervention and to make that decision on behalf of their children who are not old enough or cognitively mature enough to give consent and consent is present until proven otherwise so if i think that a mentally ill patient lacks capacity to give consent, I have to establish that with evidence. And typically in most states, including California, I have to petition the court to be able to give them psychiatric medications without their consent. It's a very extensive process. The patient has to be hospitalized. There's an adversarial court hearing called a Reese hearing here in California. The patient is represented by a lawyer. I mean, there's a lot of protections for patients' rights to decline a psychiatric medication, even when even when they're hospitalized involuntarily. Uh, in fact, in California, if a patient is hosp- hospitalized involuntarily for a psychiatric issue, maybe they're acutely manic um, or they're schizophrenic and they have uh, an acute psychotic episode where they're hearing voices and, and um, endorsing delusional beliefs, even then, even then, um, I cannot medicate them without establishing that they lack consent. And that, that requires an extensive legal process actually Uh, to do that, even to do that, you know, for a few days or a few weeks while they're in the hospital. So um, all that is to say that um, those same protections are entirely absent now with the COVID vaccine regime. Um, So we are not treating patients with the same regard when it comes to this particular medical intervention that we would treat them for any other medical intervention. And that's, that's clearly wrong. Um, it's wrong not only because these products have, by and large, failed to achieve their public health purpose. It's wrong just because these products have been proven to be uh, much more uh, potentially harmful, uh, not just because adverse events are more common than we were initially led to believe and oftentimes serious, including, including death. But even if that wasn't the case, even if this, these, these did prove uh, to be as safe and effective as we were told initially, it would still be wrong to force them on people. Just from the standpoint of sound medical practice and sound medical ethics, that that argument that we heard early on that, well, even if you're not going to benefit, you should still do this for the sake of um, that social solidarity argument uh, didn't apply to these vaccines. We knew right out of the gate that they didn't stop infection and transmission. So this is always a decision about the individual uh, risk benefits to the recipient of the vaccine. And where there's risk, there has to be choice. Um, even, if, even if it's a small degree of risk, which in this case, it appears not to be a negligible risk to take these vaccines. Um, so uh, so th- this, is, this is wrong for many medical reasons uh, related to these particular products and their failure to deliver um, and, the, um, and the adverse consequences that we're seeing evidence for basically mounting anything by, by the week. But it's also wrong, even aside from all of that. It's it's wrong. It's wrong to intervene in someone's body intrusively in that way. It's wrong to force even a good and beneficial medical intervention on patients. I have patients decline routinely things that um, that I believe would be good for them in, in my own medical judgment, and I respect that. I may not agree with their decision, but I respect the right to make that decision. Um, you know, when I chair the ethics committee at see UCF, we would routinely get consults for patients that were declining even life-saving medical interventions.
3: And they had the right to do that,
5: even if it would foreseeably hasten their death. You know, we we could try to persuade them if we really thought they were making a serious mistake in, dec- in declining a medical intervention that was likely to be really beneficial and likely not to be harmful. Um, after we attempted to um, per- persuade them, if they if they had capacity, uh, they had decisional capacity. They understood the risks, benefits, and alternatives uh, to that decision, uh, and they made that decision. We respected it, and it shouldn't be any different when it comes to uh, these or any other vaccines. But somehow we've uh, we've allowed this COVID vaccine regime to to continue to steamroll people um, and to steamroll their their fundamental rights and freedoms, and um, and not only not only have we violated their rights in that regard, but we've actually medically injured them. Uh, We've killed some people and we've disabled others through the overzealous um, uh, uh, forcible uh, treatment of people with this vaccine. So I I think, I think it's completely um, unconscionable what's happening uh, to people in the legal system, what's happening to people who are trying to get mental health care, Um, uh, First of all, because typically they're not given accurate information about these vaccines, which makes real informed consent impossible. Um, but also because when when they're disinclined to take the vaccine, they're punished um, and they're pressured and they're they're cajoled or they're the, the carrots and sticks of you know do this or literally you're going to spend some time in jail uh, or you know do this or you're not going to get access to Things that you that you qualify for in terms of social services or care that you need in terms of mental health services, um, you know, this is uh, this is absolutely. I don't know what the word for it is. Um, it's it's. I find it I find it disgusting, and um, it's extremely distressing to me that more physicians and uh, more public health uh, professionals haven't stood up and, and denounced this kind of practice.
1: I want to broaden the discussion on this a little bit. Um, You know, it is not just the shots, folks. We have dealt with hundreds of families that have faced informed consent decisions about the drugs that are given in the hospitals. You know, the remdesivir, the morphine. I mean, we're looking at these records uh, right now in cases. And I can tell you that these hospitals have taken uh, informed consent and have basically thrown it out the window. And in fact, Catherine Hewig is on the call. She's listening right now. She sent me an article from... JAMA, it was an editorial saying that the hospitals want to move to something called informed ascent, and that is asinine, I believe, but informed ascent, and they say it's a more acceptable approach because you get the family to relinquish responsibility about life and death decisions to the clinician, which then goes on and stops the treatment. Uh, you know, there, this is not how we want our hospitals to proceed. And I, you know, I do believe that many, many people died from their treatment in the hospitals during this time frame. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, too, is that patients will come in with bacterial pneumonia or some non-COVID illness and bang, they are thrown into the COVID protocols right away, which kill them. I mean, like I said, remdesivir is killing about 50 percent of the patients in many of the hospitals and up to 70 percent in others. So I am. Yeah. I, I mean, we have had a complete breakdown of the doctor-patient relationship, it's a complete disrespect for the patient and for the patient's family members. You know, th- these hospitals, I hate to say it, they seem to love that they're able to isolate these patients and drive the family away. And we've had family members removed by police officers because they're asking that uh, they, they resuscitate a family member instead of, um, you know, letting them die. Um, so, I, I mean, it is just horrific what's happened. And, and I, I'm sure I don't know the half of it. I'm sure that many of the listeners have some horrific stories to tell. But this informed consent has is being whittled away across the systems in so many ways. And it seems particularly targeted at the elderly, the mentally ill. And, and we have a list of 75 Down syndrome children that died in hospitals, thanks to Scott Shara and his work. You know, we know that that's happened. So, you know, those those family members, you know, with Down syndrome had you know they were beloved in their families, and yet it seemed like these hospitals just wanted to kill them off as if they were a burden to society. So I am I I really feel that the hospitals have really let us down. The medical profession has really let us down. It is an immoral process that we're dealing with right now in these hospitals.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree, uh, Warner. I mean, I've seen it in my own situation where I was denied access to seeing my mom, and she was in an emergent situation in the hospital because I wasn't vaccinated. And and I would love to explore what's happening legally um, to get accountability for that. But before we jump into that, John, I, am, I thank you for joining. I saw you were on. I invited you as a speaker. Um, I know you've got a lot to, to probably say as it relates to that. I know you have your hand up. So why don't you jump in and then maybe one of the attorneys can comment on um, if there's anything happening to bring accountability in those circumstances. I, Warner, I always say that um, we've, we actually don't really know probably anyone that's died of COVID, but we know are people that have been murdered from a government and institution and a hospital institution or a medical institution that's denied uh, effective early treatment and instead um, deployed a protocol that was extremely, had extremely dire outcomes.
1: So, Just real quickly before John pops up here. I, I mean, we are pursuing cases. Uh, we have one filed here in Ohio right now. We have others we're looking at. I mean, I I know the thousands of people who and millions, literally, who have lost family members to this mistreatment at hospitals. So I know it's a flood of cases. I want to go back uh, to what uh, Tricia Lindsay said. You know, we have to start somewhere. So we are bringing the cases and we are going to try to carve out a pathway and try to hold these hospitals responsible. And, you know, even if these cases lose, uh, they at least provide guidance and they help inform us in terms of how the courts are thinking about it and how to restructure to go back at it because we've got many, many millions of opportunities to go at this one and we will chip away until we find a way.
4: Right. I just jump in a little bit and broaden this a little bit more Um, and just add that we have to also be aware of what these cases of informed consent at the hospital are also leading to because it's leaking into the schools. And by that I mean the informed consent of parents and the consent of parents with regards to their children. Um, like what Bobby Ann was talking about before, but there are even school districts in that are now training teachers to um, implement social emotional learning um, treatment and classes for the children. Teachers are being trained, then being made to diagnose um, children with possible mental instability. And for little simple issues in in um, schools, which one person contacted me last week, her daughter literally had a breakup with a boyfriend. A breakup with a boyfriend. She had a bad morning. Went to speak with her counselor, and now I was contacted because they may need the legal representation because the counselor has not stopped contacting this young lady, and has now referred her mental health treatment in the hospital, and so they're using um, these. They they're using these. Um, how can i say these programs these bills this 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 attack on the parents right to um to um govern their children they're using it and they're attacking it for a greater for a greater purpose down the road and i mean they have children that are taking um surveys in school and the surveys are not the typical surveys as far as I, I don't know. They're asking them questions that has to do with their private medical informa- private medical information, um, about thoughts on certain topics that parents are unaware of. I mean topics that are that are private, that are pretty much inappropriate and that a lot of parents um that are now finding out are objecting to, but yet the schools have gone ahead, handed out these surveys, and they're using it to pretty much diagnose these to use it as a as a um a tool to funnel them into the mental health industry, literally. And so that's another Trojan horse that we're looking at, and it's all being used. It's, Trojan, COVID is like a Trojan horse bringing in so many different dynamics. And the dynamic is pretty much an attack completely on our constitutional rights, parental consent and governance over their children and with the individual governance over their over their own bodies. And so we have to continue... And I don't think we can emphasize it enough. We have to continue to bring cases. We have to continue to fight. We have to continue to raise our voices because it's it's it seems like it's, but as many as most of us know on this line, especially my um legal colleagues, we know that there are so many different ten, um tentacles to this, so many spreading out in so many different directions. And some states are worse than others. But as we know, if it is passed, in New York, California, certain key states, that's what's gonna spread out eventually to others. Because when I tell parents what's going on in some of these school districts, they don't even know. They have children that right. are going into school, you know, and making decisions without their parents' um, consent that they know nothing about. And by the time the parents um, object to it, they're telling them that they don't have the right to, and they threaten them with calling child protective services on them.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. We have LAUSD that it's, it's known, I mean, it's in their curriculum that says that. Uh, if if children are seeking gender affirming care that it is to be kept secret from the parents um you know i I was laughing in california they had a bill that it It said kids as young as 12 could make their own medical decisions with with or without the knowledge or consent of their parents but if you take a child under the age of 18 to get their ears pierced you have to get you have to show a form of id and sign a parental consent form it's it's absolutely it's beyond asinine it's quite dangerous um so let's, let's turn it over to John. Uh, John, why don't you introduce yourself, and then I, I know you've got some statements that you want to make.
6: Um, yeah, hi. Thank you for bringing me up, Laura. Uh, it, this is Laura, right?
0: It is. Absolutely. Good to talk yeah, to good you.
6: Good to talk to you again. Um, so I'm just going to stay in the vein of the conversation rather than switch over to any of my um, uh, schedule of my legal stuff. But for the crowd here, I'm just an engineer, and uh, I fought the mask order. Um, the governor actually rescinded the order and reissued another order. With an exception in it, just to get around my lawsuit and take my standing. Um, then I sued him over the the uh, the vax issue, because I was going to law school at 56 years old, got thrown out for not getting vaxed, and um, and that's not right. So I'm suing the state and federal court, and the vaccine stopped. Uh, but it's it's a it's a legal labyrinth of negotiating various things like standing. Um, so I I have a play in that, um, and I can hold that. Later, but I do want to address what was just brought up. With all the, um, you know, it's all medical ethics that we're talking about, right? Now, I, <clears throat> I, I did talk to uh, Aaron, still here, right? All right, good. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you directly, um, but I did want to talk to you about it. It's One of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Jay said he would be in on it. Um, I've talked to other guys, and that is. Oh, by the way, for the crowd, I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm an engineer. But my job in my career was pushing this together uh, for large contracts among multiple companies, um, which you have to tell each company what the value is. It's, you know, seven and eight figure deals, uh, everything, software, services, uh, intellectual property. So it, it's it's strategic and you, you get a mission and then you have objectives within the mission. You have strategies for each objective. You have tactics within each um, with each strategy. So. One of the solutions that I see to a lot of this at a high level, not to get into the details, but is, is something I have. Uh, it's the International Medical Ethics Forum uh, to be held about, um, if, if, like, if I can get enough people to do this, it would be about eight months from now. And it would be at Bretton Woods at Mount Washington Hotel in New Hampshire, which has a lot of historical significance. Um, and it would entail a reaffirmation of the Nuremberg Code. And the Hippocratic Oath, with additions for the digital age, stu- age stuff that we now face, that is, is I don't want to say missing. Um, I like I like short and um, I like short things like the Constitution that survive forever, but we we do need some extra layers there. If we don't add anything to the Nuremberg Code or the Hippocratic Oath, we can at least reaffirm at the International Medical Ethics Forum and send back uh, bills to be enacted. To either the states or the nations that, have it, that are attending, I, I believe this could be something very big. It would be a big solution. It's high-minded. No, I understand. Um, but if, if people wanted to work with me on that, it's it's obviously too big for me. Hi, um, mom. Um... Oh, I just heard somebody. So anyway, uh... whenever I talk, some other noise comes through. Are you guys hearing that?
1: Well, I'll. I'll jump in John I'm in um, I'm, I think we can get you some funding for that kind of idea as well um, you know more and more folks are, are willing to put their money on the line so uh, count me in Okay, right. great idea okay I, I, I want to address I want to address one other thing real quickly you know the medicalization of our education systems has been going on for a long time I sued our county uh, it used to be called the MRDD board uh, I sued them because of the use of Medicaid funds with disabled uh, children and even disabled adults. We used to have fund that through taxpayer funding locally, and they had workshops and, and basically education to help people be productive no matter what their disabilities were. And then we saw Medicaid coming in, and we saw those expenses go up and up and up and up. And they were the, the school system was generating millions of dollars. It started out at about a million a year. By the time I was done with my litigation, it had already jumped to about $17 million a year. God knows what it is now. It's probably in the hundreds of millions. But our school systems are looking to Medicaid to help fund what they're doing in the school system. And this has been going on for several decades now. So it, it isn't something recent. It's something we sued about a long time ago. I just want people to realize there's a real history to this medicalization of our children and our disabled adults.
6: Yeah, and let me add to that, if you don't mind, Warner, because that's the second half of what I wanted to say. Um, Just just to round out the first half, the IMEF would also, it's a counter to the FSMB and the medical boards and medical licensing boards. So the the board certifications, like um, the NGOs, like the American Board of Internal Medicine, Pediatrics, Family Medicine, all those need to be countered. They're very strong, powerful, and funded organizations. Um, this would be a counter to that, as well as this, this crazy FSMB that came out of nowhere. We're looking at communism, basically, not to the individual stuff that Warner, Warner was talking about. Um, yeah, it's been going on. It, it's nothing new to good. Somebody mentioned that, yeah, it, this has been happening since COVID. I know that person probably was thinking in context of specific things, but taking over the um, the family. Since divorce has gone up substantially, the power uh, within families, it, it it's challenged such that the state can step between warring parties in a divorce and take over children. So, if it's deep, uh, CPS in other states, we call it Department of Children and Families here in Massachusetts. They have enormous power where they get between the uh, the couple and then get between the kids and the and the parents uh, at various ages. Um, I, I mean, the stories I have for you, uh, changing lives. I don't know how much entertainment you want me to bring versus just talking. You know, uh, maybe we can draw some people in here. There's something called changing lives through literature. OK, so I got a Sue order because I was asking for custody of my kids. I, I got I ended up getting full custody. Um, I'll, I'll stop that in, in Massachusetts, but not. But throughout this process, I was just on a list of, you know, I had litigation over, you know, getting my kids. So I get for a for people out there. It means on his own, without either party asking to the judge, sent me an order, an order to go into a poetry reading group. OK, now, I don't see people laughing. You guys should all be laughing right now. It's crazy. They took my freedom and told me what? I had to go to a poetry reading group. And I looked it up, changed Lives through literature. What was it? A judge was having um, lemonade after playing tennis with his friend. His friend happened to be a literature professor at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. And they thought it would be a good idea if prisoners would read poetry because then they would be less, less likely to reoffend. And so they created this program. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, the literature professor isn't making enough coin. So he's got to tap some money out of the judiciary to slide over to the literature professor so he can create this program. And, and they, they pull it down to uh, to prisoners. So it's all bullshit. Excuse my language. Uh, so what happened from there? The, the, the judge is talking to the head of the judges for the probate and family court. And the, <laughs> the probate and family court head judge says, well, wow, that's a wonderful idea. We're going to roll that out to the probate and family court. So I get an order, an order to read poetry like that's going to do anything. And then they that's just one thing. Now, I mean, I I did intend to make this kind of um, in speaking about it, but they do step between the kids. I had trouble with DCF in that they called me up and told me I had to report something. And I said, you already know about it. Why don't you report it? You're, you're, You're like three doors down the hallway. They said, no, you have to report it. What they were trying to do is trap me into filing a false report. Could so take the kids because they knew they could. The other side was not going to work. So they were trying to get something on me. Um, I played their game. I beat them. But these people are are nasty. They don't care about kids. They get federal money well, into state funds. And um, I don't want to turn this into a DCF. Thing, yeah, but
0: <laughs> right. Well, John, I mean, I think I'll agree. no doubt that the court system, the school system, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical institutions it's all been weaponized um, against the the American, really the global community, but in particular, uh, what seems to be glaring is is the nuclear family, the war on the nuclear family, and what's been happening. Um, it's it is astonishing, and I agree with Trisha. I agree with, with really everyone that all the panelists that, that have been speaking about this. You know, we have the gamut of what's happening with regard to vaccines, all the way through to what's happening um, with with parental rights and there's always this intersection point of, of what's been happening in this country and parents' rights seems to be that inner point. Um, and it's terrifying. And and so what I would like to do is just kind of go around before we wrap up and ask if there's anything else that anyone wants to add. John, I'll make sure that I put you in touch with these with these teams here, or the team that's on this panel. Uh, and you guys can take this offline and explore this further.
6: Uh, but I, I would I love can, to just have buddy. you guys. So I'll, I'll, I'll or do whatever. I'll, I'll mute now, but thank you very much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Um, thanks for joining. Uh, John is, for those of you who don't know him, John's done some tremendous work or research um, and it has some pretty concrete data, almost empirical data about the impact that um, remdesivir has had and the vaccine injuries and mortality that, that has happened. So, um, and the work he's done is is really outstanding and um, I think will be used at some point to, um, certainly in a legal capacity to understand and highlight what, what, what the uh, human population has suffered at the hands of uh, the pharmaceutical companies. So with that, uh, why don't we just go around and, and have anyone offer any closing statements. And uh, before we do that, though, I just want to uh, maybe, Warner, you can talk about the, um, the event one more time. Talk about the panels that you guys will be discussing, because I think that's really, really important. Um, so maybe let's start with you, Warner, and then um, we'll turn it over to you, Aaron, and then um, after that we'll go to you, Bobby Ann, and then Jeff, and we will close it out with you.
1: All right. Uh, yeah, it's the same, It's the list that I said at the uh, outset. But uh, Friday night, I know Steve Kirsch is having an event uh, to to talk uh, generally with people. So uh, please attend that as well if you get down there on Friday. Um, that would be Friday, March 24th, then and. You know, we want to have these panels, you know, open up the discussion among the attorneys in terms of what is working in their cases. And obviously, employer mandates uh, were huge in terms of trying to salvage those jobs. And we are now litigating those under ADA, workers' compensation, EEOC, state civil rights claims, Uh, education mandates. I I almost can't believe we're still dealing with this. I, I just, you know, these universities are supposed to have smart people at them but they are really stupid, especially the Ivy Leagues. We've seen an incredible push in the Ivy Leagues. Uh, so we are still dealing every day with the education mandates. Um, medical licensing, obviously, you know, we've seen this attack on doctors here in Ohio and around the country. Um, so we need to get strategies uh, to deal with the medical licensing, the board certification, um, you know, the privileges at hospitals, they're denying privileges to these docs. So. And, and we're going to have, obviously, uh, Pierre Corey will be there and Ryan Cole on that. Um, you know, fraud, I, I just, the fraud that has been uh, le- released on the United States by this COVID uh, program is unbelievable at every level. Uh, everywhere we look, I mean, we literally went in and rank ordered uh, the SBA monies. We're rank ordering the PPP and just trying to start picking those off from the top. Um, you know, we have pharmaceutical fraud, we have clinical trial fraud, uh, you know, Brooke and I saw a a prosecution on a clinical trial and we're like, we're looking at that prosecution It's like, no, how come the federal government wouldn't prosecute over here? And I will say this about our federal government too. I, I, I need to always say this. We have patriots within the government. We have patriots in our education systems and we have patriots in our hospitals. And those folks, even though right now they may be in the minority, they are fighting they're getting the information out to us. Uh, and, and I cannot tell you, I appreciate those of you who stayed in and are, are staying in at great risk to your career uh, and, and are feeding information out. Uh, the information we're getting right now is just unreal from the whistleblowers. So it is much appreciated. It's helping us. Um, you know, it's helping to support Brooks case. It's helping to support other cases um, and, and the astounding numbers. And this is what we need. We need people to tell us what's going on in your hospital. What I've seen from hospital insiders is just horrific. The administrations know what they're doing. Um, you know I, know, I know that hospitals like Johns Hopkins are projecting out that they are going to have less pediatric work to do or less pediatric patients. I shouldn't, shouldn't say that. Less pediatric patients, but more complicated things. They already know this. They, know, their plan, they got a five-year plan to deal with the lowered number of uh, p- children but the higher complexity, it's already built into the system. They know what's happened and they know what's happening and they're planning for it, for God's sake. Uh, you know, civil rights, uh, you know, obviously that that is just across the board. There's all kinds of issues, um, you know, obviously with Facebook, Twitter, all of our social media. And um, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled with how the courts are going on that. I think they're going to gonna get us uh, straight on the first amendment issue. Uh, we have a long way to go with ADA access though. And, in accommodation with hospitals and doctors' offices that are still requiring masking of people uh, even to show up or perhaps, like we said earlier, uh, that you get these COVID shots. Um, And then for the future, you know, we'll be discussing vaccine injury and what we can do there. Um, And I do think we're going to be able to open that up uh, in certain ways, uh, especially because employers mandated it. They should be held accountable, especially because universities mandated it. They should be held accountable. In fact, we're looking... You know, we put a call out for a person who was felt forced to get a shot at one of these private universities or colleges. We want to hear from you. Um, We want to make an example. We want to hold them responsible for what they did. Um, Hospital negligence, of course, uh, we're working on that. We've already talked that. And then finally, you know, how do we break through in the mass tort area to get, you know, to get people recoveries? And, you know, another thing that we've been looking at, which I'm I'm not sure what the pathway is, but we're working it out, is under the Alien Tort Statute from 1789. So we're looking at how foreigners can hold uh, Pfizer, for example, accountable. And a number of lawyers are looking at that. And I can tell you it's very complicated. There's a lot of pitfalls. But uh, Pfizer has been held accountable in the past under the Alien Tort Statute. And I can tell you by my research, they've suppressed All of the news reports and everything else to get the complaint in one of those cases, I had to hire somebody in New York City to go down to the courthouse to get it. Now, most of these lawsuits and complaints and things are all electronic now. They're all scanned in. It's easy to find. This one was not easy to find, but we have it. Um, So that's I I think it's going to be fantastic. And I think for people just to get to know each other and we're going to provide materials. And of course, we have uh, open resources for everything we've done. If any attorney wants to jump in and help out or take on a case, I mean, we'll try to point you in the right direction for what we know. Uh, and then, you know, finally, I just want to re-emphasize: even the losing cases provide guidance for future success. I, I So you, you attorneys out there who you know, are trying and, and sometimes losing. God bless you. Uh, we, we are paying attention to what's going on. So thank you, everybody, for letting me speak tonight and for being on the call here.
0: Thank you so much, Warner. And thank you for the work that you're doing. You're certainly leading leading the charge here. And we're so grateful. Aaron, do you have anything that you wanted to say before we close out?
5: Uh, yeah. First of all, I just want to thank the Unity Project and you, Laura, for hosting this conversation. Uh, you, The Unity Project was first- out of the gate, recognizing the uh, problems with AB 2098 and a whole slate of legislation. There were actually 10 bills that the Unity Project was opposing in California, connecting grassroots efforts all over the state to oppose these bad bills in the last legislative session. Uh, They defeated eight out of those uh, 10 bills. And so we're we're not having to file lawsuits against those other eight, uh, in large part because of the efforts of Laura and her team at the Unity Project, uh, which I'm proud to be a part of. Um, And then the ones that got through, you know, our our case is looking good so far. And um, and, and the other law, which has to do with tracking vaccination status in a centralized database, um, hopefully there'll be opportunities to challenge that law on privacy grounds and so forth. So anyway, take a look at the Unity Project website. Um, You know, consider supporting their work. California is the tip of the spear. Unity Project is is focused now not only on what's going on in California, which is usually the leading edge of these changes, but also supporting folks in other states that are facing uh, similar fights, providing a template on how that. Um, maybe maybe another day I'll talk a little bit about another federal case I'm involved in, the Missouri v. Biden case, uh, which was filed by the state attorney general of Missouri and Louisiana, uh, alleging uh, that the federal government has been colluding with social media companies like Twitter and Meta to suppress the free speech rights of Americans and arguably social media companies as private entities can censor. There's legal debate about that, but uh, it's at least debatable. But no one one doubts, uh, and it's not debatable, that the federal government could do that. It's a violation of First Amendment free speech rights. There's four private plaintiffs in that case, myself, two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration and a nonprofit group in Louisiana. And um, the documents we've uncovered so far in that case indicate not only was this happening it was happening at a much vaster scale than we even initially suspected and um, and what we suspected has also been confirmed by the twitter files if you've been following uh, those emerging stories as they're posted um and so we have a we have a vast government uh censorship regime uh, a sort of public private partnership uh, that's evolved here where the government is is companies to do their bidding and the companies are Uh, We're seeing initially some resistance is put up, but they they're worn down and they're eventually conscripted for government purpose. Uh, And so this is a story that I think all Americans should be following. All Americans should have an interest in. Um, And you should have an interest in this uh, even if you're not active at publishing or posting on social media. And the reason is the Supreme Court has affirmed in several free speeches that the right of free speech is not just about the right of the person who's uh, constrained from speaking. Uh, that's problematic enough. But uh, free speech is important in American law and is a basic, uh, you know, fundamental human right, also for the sake of the recipient of the speech. In other words, you have the right to information. You have the right on debated or debatable questions to hear both sides of those debates. And what we saw during COVID, one side of these debates was entirely suppressed, and um, public health authorities were able to project what was really a false scientific consensus um, and tell people to follow the science and and people thought they were following the science, whereas in fact they were just following the television. And uh, people like the the speakers on this call and other physicians who were calling into question um, our pandemic policies and calling out the harms of those pandemic policies were systematically silenced um, and sidelined, not just by private news media, media or private social media, enterprises, but we now know also by the state, by the federal government. So the Constitution is really um, just a piece of paper unless Americans are willing to stand up and defend their constitutional rights. And my last maybe parting piece of advice is you may say, well, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. I don't have a microphone like, you know, the host
3: of uh,
5: of large Twitter spaces might have. So what can I do um, besides sort of maybe cheerlead some of these efforts from the sidelines. And I think there's a lot that ordinary Americans can do. And I'll I'll just leave you with one concrete thing that you can begin doing is um, this censorship regime was so powerful that I think a lot of people internalized the prohibitions and internalized censorship such that, uh, you know, many of us started censoring ourselves in conversations or in public settings. Maybe we thought we were the only one who had these questions or had these doubts or were skeptical, um, about what was going on. And, uh, and just as, 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 cowardice and timidity can become contagious, I think we saw that during the pandemic courage is also contagious. And, um, and so t- take, take the risk. First of all, notice when you start to self-censor and then maybe take the risk and stick your neck out a bit in that, in that conversation at work or in that conversation among your family or your, your peers. And, now, you know, be willing to, to challenge what looks like a strong consensus, be willing to ask, point out, to be willing to draw people's attention, maybe to sources of information they weren't aware of. And, and you may find two or three other people coming out of the woodworks and thanking you for doing that. You know, hey, I was thinking the same thing you were thinking or uh, you follow the Unity Project, too, and they're doing great work or whatever. And, uh, and now you have an ally. Now you're not not so alone. I think when people are cowed into silence, that's how essentially that's how totalitarian regimes develop. Um, you know, they, they begin with these external controls and external forms of censorship, but eventually, um, you know, less and less of that is needed because people have internalized uh, the, the regime to such a point where they, the questions no longer occur to them. So keep asking questions. Don't outsource your common sense. Don't outsource your rationality uh, to so experts. Um, all of you are capable of spotting logical contradictions. All of you are capable of spotting when people are being insincere uh, or duplicitous. And I think once Americans, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a critical mass, begin reclaiming their um, the right to speak, the right to think, the right to ask questions. I think this whole edifice that we've been talking about today will begin to collapse. We're already seeing chinks in the armor. We're already seeing cracks in in what I call the mega machine. Um, and so definitely there's some positive developments on the horizon. But I think all of us have a role to play in, in, in this, not just. You know, not just people involved in lawsuits, or not just the people involved in media and communications. So uh, thanks, Laura, for hosting uh, the, the conversation. I want to commend the other speakers for the great work that you're doing. And um, yeah, it's onwards. <laughs> well, thank you.
0: Do. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Aaron is our chief of medical ethics and truly someone who um, you want to talk about extreme sacrifice. Um, I think, Aaron, you epitomize uh, courage and sacrifice. I know the toll that this has taken on you personally, uh, you have lost your career. Uh, I know you've rebuilt a, a career as well, but you certainly, um, and the Marine Corps, they say, Ductus exempla, which means lead by example, and you, you certainly exemplify that. So we are honored to work with you at the Unity Project and uh, obviously keep up the good work that you're, um, Bobby Ann, let's turn it over to you. Why don't you uh, give us some closing thoughts?
2: Sure, yeah. So, you know, I just want to echo um, something that Jeff had said earlier about, you know, we spend a lot of time um, giving interviews, giving speeches, um, going to conferences, um, doing panel discussions. You know, we're, we're trying to um, not just fight, you know, in the court for, for what's right and, and to defend the Constitution, but... Um, also to educate the public in general, and and the reason why that's important, um, one thing that Jeff had alluded to is because you know the public that that's who's going to sit on the juries when when there are jury trials um, that come up in the future uh, about various issues relating to all of this. But the other reason is also because you know the, the mainstream media is not is not covering um, most of of what we're doing, um, and it's you know it's it's. Problematic, but it is definitely something that is calculated, and and it's um you know it's censorship at the highest level, and um so it's it's really reliant. We have to rely on on the people, um and the alternative media sources to get word out about uh, you know legal not just legal battles that we're fighting um, and winning, but also how to even stop it from going there. And 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 what I mean by that is. Um, you know, somebody stands up on, on you know, television um, and seems to be an authority figure and says, you know, uh, we, we are going to all lock down. you know, we're, everyone's going to stay in their house for for two weeks to flatten the curve, you know, or, or they tell you that you have to wear a mask, or they tell you that you have to mask your child, or they tell you that you have to get, you know, a, a, a COVID shot to go to work and, and earn a living and stuff, you know, you know, a lot of what we've seen, especially in New York State, um, is that uh, an, an unelected bureaucrat has given a quote-unquote guidance or a quote unquote, suggestion, and then use private industry, um, take it and just run with it and start uh, pushing it and enforcing it. And if the people knew that that wasn't legal and that wasn't the proper way to make rules or laws, um, then they would be more empowered to say, well, wait a minute, let, let me question this first. Let, let me let me stop here and say, is this right? that can you do this? You know, we have to we have to go back to critical thinking. Um, it's so important because if you don't have critical thinking and you're only hearing one side of the story because of the censorship, then that's it. then, then you're done. Then whatever is being touted and spread, you are going to, Believe and you're going to follow because you don't have two sides of the discourse. There is no discussion, and and discussion is is exactly what you need. Whether it's law, whether it's uh, medicine, whether it's science, you need both sides of the equation. You need to have um, information that is conflicting presented to you, and then your brain is forced to pick one, right? You, you hear two sides of an argument or two sides of a scientific debate, um, and, and then you your brain says, okay, well, which one of those do I think is right, and, and why, right? So we have to get back to that. Um, but we have to kind of do it in, in a, a backwards manner, because we don't have, we naturally don't have the two sides of the discourse happening because of the censorship. So, you know, things that, that people can do, um, like what Aaron was saying, you know, things that you can do to get involved, you don't have to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit, you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to be a doctor. Uh, You don't have to run an organization like the Unity Project. You know, those are all amazing things that that we are all doing. But you can every every person can do something and every person needs to do something because it's all hands on deck at this point. You know, there are a lot of organizations that have popped up over the last three years. Um, And, you know, if people want to get involved and volunteer, do so. If you don't have time to volunteer, totally understandable. Um, You know, uh, make a donation and support an organization that that is doing some frontline work. Um, you know, a lot of things happen because, um, like Aaron said, courage is contagious. So you see somebody stand up, or you, you watch a video, you listen to a presentation, um, you watch an interview, and you hear this person and you say, you know what, they're right. You know what, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to stand up too. I'm going to information, I'm, I'm going to tell my friends, I'm going to tell my neighbors, I'm going to tell my family. And that's how this is going to get done. By sharing the information the old-fashioned way, because mainstream media is never going to pick this up, um, and 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 if they do, it'll be you know to a minimal amount. Um, so it's super important. I hope people can can, for example, take the the link to this um, and and share it. I hope people can come to the event um, March twenty fifth in Atlanta. It's going to be a fabul- fabulous event. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I want to thank Laura. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for everything you do at the Unity Project. Um, and thank you to my colleagues on the call. You guys are you guys are all champions.
0: Thank you for for being a part of this, uh, Bobby Ann. I know you
2: are really behind
0: enemy lines and in the trenches in New York as we are here in California. And um, I'm just, I'm really inspired uh, by the work that, that you guys are doing. You certainly are. Uh, every one of you are the line of defense um, by, by what's happening in this country. Uh, Jeff why don't you uh, give us some of your closing thoughts and then I will close this out for the evening.
3: Sure thanks a lot Laura and thank you for uh, this uh, very interesting and informative Twitter space tonight um, very professionally run and I appreciate the invitation uh, I'll just uh, finish with some quick comments um, three points so first, uh, just to let people know, um, one of the projects that I'm real excited about is we're building an online repository for COVID-related evidence. So we identified that there's not a single place that you can go to search for all these documents that people are heroically accumulating through their FOIA lawsuits and in um, uh, discovery, and uh, you know just finding uh, tweets and and getting witness statements and that kind of thing. So I have a team of uh, very skilled and highly motivated volunteers who are building a tech platform where those kinds of documents can be uploaded, OCR'd, and into text, searchable format with a really robust search engine. Um, And we're super excited about that. So that's one thing. People ask me a lot about, you know, what can they do um, my mantra is local, 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 and uh, we're prototyping here in our local county um, a kind of local activism platform for bringing heat to local authorities who participated in uh, some of the worst excesses of the pandemic. So, for example, we have a you know a couple of local professors and uh, doctors who led the charge to... Uh, you know get everybody vaccinated and made all these promises about safety and efficacy that all turned out to be lies and so um you know we're going to be mounting a pressure campaign on their employers uh to take disciplinary action for their misinformation Um, among other things um the final point uh you know back in 2020 we tried to buy billboards to push back against the masking and then 21 against the vaccine mandates, and the, the billboard companies would not sell us space for those purposes. But uh, I'm happy to report that those rules have been relaxed. And anybody who wants to, you know, just do something kind of immediately satisfying, uh even rural billboards can be relatively inexpensive. And, you know, get yourself a billboard and tell everybody how you feel about what's been going on. You know, maybe work with a couple other folks to to scrape the money together. Like I said, it's not expensive and we're going to be, uh, field testing some of that here. And I hope to, um, have a little packet, uh, of how to's and do's and don'ts for folks soon. Anybody who wants to follow any of this stuff is welcome to sign up to my Substack, Coffee and COVID, uh, no charge. And, um, I routinely report on, you know, regular COVID news as well as, uh, updates on these kinds of things and tips and so with that, uh, I, I thank my colleagues for all their, their wonderful thoughts and the information and the, the courage uh, that they've all shown and um, stepping into the crosshairs when nobody else would do it. So, thanks again. Jeff,
0: uh, tell us one time how people can follow your Substack.
3: Sure. The easiest way, we have our own URL. You can go to www.coffeeandandcovid.com and uh, it'll take you right to the Substack. Fantastic!
0: Thanks for joining. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge. Keep up the good work. Uh, I do want to connect you with John, who's an event. The other speaker, he's got um, an unbelievable database that he's put together. So I want to do that offline. I think you guys can can really, um, I think, develop some, some powerful information together. That'd be great, Trisha, Let's uh, let's hear some closing thoughts from you.
4: Um, Thank you, Laura, and thank you for having me on um, with this wonderful um, panel of speakers. And thank you to the Unity Project for the work that they're doing. I'm not going to belabor it. I think my colleagues have touched on a number of different aspects, and I share their opinion. What I will say is that the Army, there is a first line of defense. There are different ranks, and everyone, every rank or every division, every portion, I'm not a military person, but I'm I'm sure you all can imagine what I'm saying, Um, they each have a role that they play. You have the first line of defense and you have the second line that goes in. You have some coming from the ground. You have some coming from air, from the sea. Um, but the fact is that they come and they keep coming. And every part plays their role. And that's what I tell people who often ask me what they can do. Find your role and play your part. And every every effort is important to this war because that's what we are in. We are in a war. And if everyone just does their part, we will win eventually. And we are winning, which is why we're seeing the tides changing in the courts and things shifting. We just have to keep at it and keep going and try our best to stay positive as we're going through. And so I look forward to the event in a few weeks and once again, being amongst this wonderful group of people, you all have a great night.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you everyone for joining this evening. Um, one thing that I will, I will close this out with this thought that, um, this is not going to be, unfortunately, the last time that we see our uh, rights infringed upon, unfortunately. And it's folks like like the, the folks that are on this panel that are uh, really putting at their own careers at risk um, in order to step up and to speak the truth and to defend the Constitution, to defend the American people and, and even the global community in some sense. So, you know, the United States of America has always been looked upon as this this beacon of freedom. And I still believe that this is the greatest country uh, and we are all blessed to to be in this country. We need now need to um, come together and stand up and defend the Constitution defend our rights, uh, in particular defend some of our natural rights, which are our, uh, parental rights. So uh, for those of you that are interested in the work that the Unity Project is doing, you can go to theunityproject.org. Uh, we're putting together strategies and campaigns uh, going into 2023 that we will map out for the entire year to stand up and uh, against what's happening and to support the, the legal initiatives, to support uh, the work that Aaron Cariotti is doing. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Aaron Cariotti has written a book. It's one of my favorite books. I encourage everyone to go out and read it. Um, so so look that up. And thank you again for attending. Uh, we will post this on theunityproject.org. So if anyone is looking for a recording of this, you'll be able to find it there. All right, everyone, have a fantastic evening. Thank you so much for
1: joining. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. everybody.
6: Bye-bye. Thank